Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society being fueled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. So ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. Fail better, everyone. There we are. Those words uh, from Samuel Beckett's penultimate novella, Worstwood Ho, published in 1983. What is probably, it's very hard to make out from that novella, an old man staring at his grave, um, considering the double failure of life, the inability to escape death and the inability to express this condition. So, woo, yeah, let's go. Uh, It's very, the irony of this, of course, is a beautiful irony to the fact that Fail Better is now tattooed onto the arm of a tennis player who's won. Uh, Stan Wawrinka has it as his motto tattooed on his arm, Fail Better. It's become the mantra of the dot-com entrepreneurs, Fail Better. It's actually in the complete idiot's guide to great customer service. Fail better. So we have two very (laughs) extreme ideas of what failure is. We have a depressive Irishman considering his mortality and his inability to express it. We also have the idiot's guide to customer service. You know, so failure is, failure is many, many, many things. Um, uh, as uh, Ned Bowman said in his essay in The New Inquiry, watching a liturgy from such a gloomy and merciless author getting repurposed to cheer up mid-level executives is like watching a neighbour clear out their gutters with a stick they found in the garden, not realising the stick is in fact a human shin bone. So we can look at it that way. Or we can think human shin bone human shin bone. So we have these two ideas, but the, the fact is the human shin bone does successfully clear out the gutter. So there's a nice little twist there, isn't there? We have two ideas, and maybe there's a design, kind of divine justice to the fact that this, that this, this term has become repurposed and is now, um, is now something used by uh, dot-com entrepreneurs to, to suggest that, that it's part of the commercial process of setting up companies and then failing and then keep, keeping and trying. Um, uh, failure, like its apparent opposite successes, has a number of meanings, um, but that doesn't stop us from trying to agree, trying to agree on the terms. Architects, as a whole, are still castigated with a failure of a certain social period, and failure is is. It, and working out to what degree the architecture was related to the social program, and to what degree the social program was a failure or not, is something that I still think 
it surrounds the profession. And I think talking about what failure is today is also a very good means of understanding where the profession has moved to, what its concerns are, uh, and, and what, what, what we agree with. Got a great panel, really interesting. I've been speaking to them earlier. They've got very different ideas about what uh, failure is. Um, hopefully, they've also got some shared ideas too. Uh, what I'm going to do is introduce them. They're dotted around the room. Um, and then they're going to have um, give you a little short um, shot at what they think of failure, give their definitions, how it affects them. And then also, uh, and then I'm going to ask them some questions. They're going to respond then it's over to you. It's not one of those things where you have to politely and ask, a, we're not asking necessarily for a question. You can say what you think, say, give your definition of what failure is. Um, respond to something that you've heard uh, and then the panel will respond to you and then we'll have a conversation. Bars open, food is served too. So, um, these are the people in the order they'll be speaking. Um, if you can wave. <laughs> Valentina Michelli. Uh, Valentina trained in Rome and has worked for Wilkinson Air since uh, 2013. And she's worked on a various variety of projects for them, including uh, Battersea Power Station. She's currently working on the, the Medicine Galleries and a tower on Bishopsgate. Uh, in addition to playing a role with Wilkinson Air's sustainability and green groups, um, Valentina has become in, interested in the concept of wellness uh, and bringing that into the pra practice of architecture. So it'll be interesting to hear how wellness and failure in, uh, relate to each other. Um, so let's give her a welcome. Uh, Niall Bridget, Val's down here. Uh, you can wonder what this fresh-faced young youth knows of failure. Nothing at all. Apparently, well, apparently quite a bit. Uh, Niall is, um, uh, works with the collective After Party, um, who, have you got your, got the book? Got the magazine on you? Oh. Um, who produced their first, first magazine, um, uh, the title of which, The Time for Failure is Now. No, it's not, it's now. Um, the, the, the issue, uh, uh, sorry, Niall's um, doing his uh, studied at CAS and he's doing his part three studies at Westminster. It'll be interesting to hear about what his take is on the need for failure. Uh, so, give him welcome. More there by Valentina. Thank you. Um, copies are available? Copies are available. Uh, Jane Wernick, if you could just give Jane Wernick down here. Um, now, Jane is not the token engineer on the panel. Okay, uh, she may speak f as an engineer and a great uh, as a great engineer. She's worked for Arup for twenty years. She was head of their uh, office in Los Angeles for two years. She's worked on uh, Stansted. She's worked on the London Eye. She knows loads about engineering, and all her buildings are still standing. So. Again, what does she know of failure? Well, uh, throughout her career, Jane has uh, pushed at the relationship between engineering and architecture, and I think she's going to explore some of the ideas uh, about how we think about structures after we have built them. Um, so give her a good welcome. And last, by no means least, 
least Carl Turner give a wave, Carl? Carl standing by the bar there, well done, Carl. Um, founding director of Carl Turner Architects and someone, the, the, the phrase social entrepreneur is kind of overused, but I think it's a perfectly good one for, uh, ooh, thank you, uh, for, for Carl. Um, he says he's a maker at heart. Um, this may have been something to do with the fact that he worked with Foster and Partners on the Citibank delivery team at Canary Wharf. I think I'd be, want to be a maker after that. Um, one of Carl's formative projects for the practice was his very own slip house in Brixton, uh, which won the Mansa Medal. Um, he set up Carl Turner Architects in 2006, and um, I think Carl's model of uh, Carl's discussion is going to be about how we, how failure and the business of architecture go hand in hand. Um, give him a good welcome. So, f four or five minutes each. Valentina, if you care to go first. Hi. Wow. All right, first. Great. I have been thinking quite a while since you have invited me um, to talk about failure. First thing I thought, why me? Um, failure is a very difficult subject for us as people, as human and as designers. Um, and then uh, after you know, thinking about the obvious, like the structural failure, the material failure, materiality failure and so on, I think I would like to uh, investigate the aspect of how architecture often fails people. And uh, I've been thinking about it because of my interest in how um, building affects us as human beings and, and often I realize that as architects we are disconnected to the people for whom we design buildings. And I've been starting to think about which are the reasons be behind this and, um, and, and which could be the causes and which are the cultural reasons and, uh, and potentially where, you know, if there is some hope and how, how can we, um, which are the current trends and where, where, in which direction are we going or we should go. Um, so the first reason that uh, came to my mind is uh, been reading and looking into this and I think somehow as architect we already belong to the 1.5% of, you know, the richest people on the planet and we design our clients are falling within the 1%. So really, we exclude the rest of the 99% of the people. So we're disconnected already to most of the people for whom we design, or we don't even design for them. So it's a bit of an unreachable status up there. And then there is also a um, cultural reason that I think it's quite, or at least for me, I did study in Italy, I didn't study here, but I have many friends who studied here or in other countries, in Europe, in America. And often, I think, in architectural schools, we study a lot about structure, about history of architecture, about design. But there isn't enough, or at least I haven't studied enough. I wasn't taught enough about uh, psychology or cognitive behaviors, about how people behave and what the effect of what we design on, on, on people. I think it's something that is somehow is, a, is an aspect of, um, of design that it's, it's studied more and more in recent years, and recently, hopefully, we're like getting closer. But I think we're still quite disconnected to the ultimate users of the, of the buildings we design for. 
And that's, you know. Um, and then there is another reason, which is a bit more, um, uh, you know, it's a bit more, we are being on our Olympus up there, which you think a lot about design, and we don't give somehow freedom to the same people for whom we design. So we, we, um, we want to be in control of everything. Well, instead, if you, when, when you're in a space that, where you feel in control, that empowers you. So somehow by taking complete control of our design, we, we reversely take away from them control of, uh, of the use of the space. And then there is a practical reason, which is that architecture, it takes, depending on the scale of the project, it takes from between six months to a year to design, and it takes between a year to five to build. And then afterwards, we're so fed up with it that we don't even look back often. We don't look back enough, and we don't, um, and in the meantime, you know, in the, on those three, four, five years that the building is built, we, we keep on designing other things. So let's say if there is a mistake or there is something wrong, we might repeat that mistake a number of times until then it becomes evident. So it might take a decade to find out that there is the wrong, you know, there is a wrong approach, a wrong technical details, or a wrong, you know, um, materials. Um, and this is something that can be changed because there isn't, I, I think, and I truly believe this, that as architects we don't do put enough effort in convincing clients, first in looking back into our buildings, but also into engaging with clients and convince them about how important it is to do POE and to look back and to study and to understand because that is going to feed back into, again, into into our next project, into our next project. So that's how you actually really learn. And I think that um, nowadays there are these tools as well that um, I've been talking earlier with my friend, Julie, who's doing, um, for the practice where I work, she's doing um, a light touch POE um, of some of, of one of our buildings and potentially of others. And it's quite interesting because you don't need to spend 7,000, 10,000 pounds, whatever it costs to go back in a building and measure it from A to Z to get an initial um, preliminary feedback of how, you know, how the impact are, uh, what is the impact on the final users of that building or how, what's experience, what's the service and how, you know, how things are working. You can just go around, you can look at social media feedback, you can, um, you know, you can do a small survey on a, on a selected um, number of people uh, nowadays, technologies on our side with wearables, you can measure like how you know the levels of um, of harassment in people. You can measure like the heartbeat. You can measure how much they they move around and in which areas they they orbit more than others. And um, and I think this is um, is an interesting learning feedback to um, our profession. Very good. Thank you very much. If you want to, wherever you want. Okay. So, hi. So, I'm one ninth of After Party Zine, and we're a relatively new magazine. Okay. And um, we produced our magazine on the topic, The Time for Failure is Now. And what we wanted to do was try and explore where there's safe spaces to experiment and to be kind of risk-taking and see 
how that might impact architecture because you're having a lot of conversations about how things might be quite stagnant and how society, culture and politics is moving but architecture and spaces maybe aren't moving at the same pace. And we wanted to know whether there are some really safe spaces where, say, a designer can experiment and get different outcomes because there are definitely places with something as permanent and as important as architecture where you can't. So at the drawing board, it's okay to try different models, different ways of living to accommodate kind of the way we live in London where you house share more than own a home and things, but you don't really want your structural engineer say, saying fail often and fail better. And we had a series of interviews and talks. We invited, say, Ben Derbyshire to give his views from the RBA and people who own practices, and for them to say where they think their profession and industry is failing and how they can improve and how they can be more interdisciplinary and engage with the community more. Because one thing we kept on finding was lots of large ideas that architects and designers had they wouldn't ever really evaluate or test. So once they've built the scheme and it's all beautiful, they've got their photos and they've left and they never go to it again. So they don't understand whether this really great idea they had for a sequence of spaces and a commun communal living and who they envisioned living there and how they're gonna grow and develop in this house, whether that was actually the case or whether the tenants would use it in an entirely different and interesting way. And we through our conversations with the RBA, found out this is something they're keen to push and have a measure called post-occupancy evaluation where they continued to ask architects to go back after one, two, five years and test this, which is kind of what they do in medicine and law and all these different other sectors to test whether their ideas are coming out in practice and what they need to do and repeat or whether actually people are responding entirely different to these big aims. And through our magazine, we also looked at where there were big, big societal failures and failures in the profession. Because we originally started at the point where we wanted to encourage it, the conversation went elsewhere. And it's kind of interesting here, hearing different points from students who think the profession is failing them, and then from people who own practices who think students are coming in and nowhere near good enough, and then the body of the RBA who think that neither are really pulling their weight and changing the conversation and engaging enough with their key topics for the future. Thank you very much. So, of course, as the engineer, I um, felt obliged to write this down, <laughs> just in case. And, oh, sorry. But in fact, um, there's quite a lot of overlaps with what we've already heard in what I say, but I'm coming at it from a different angle. I'm definitely interested in us having a more open discussion about the success or failure of our projects in the built environment for three reasons. Firstly, and obviously, we do want to avoid catastrophes. So it's imperative that when a, whenever anything does go seriously wrong, we do our best to understand what happened and that we share our knowledge so that everyone can learn what we learned. Mostly, though, we're not talking about catastrophes. It's just that the design of the projects isn't as good as it could be. So the, the second point is that we need to take the time to properly analyze what works and what doesn't. And from this, we could learn to design and build a better and a happier environment. 
Thirdly, a lot of what we design isn't built properly the first time. Often this is down to lack of training and supervision. Sometimes it's down to a design being too difficult to build on site. Rectifying those mistakes often leads to wasted money and materials. And in turn, there is often an increase in the embodied energy and carbon emissions. So this is pretty serious. And in fact, if we improved on that, we could really help reduce our carbon emissions. So I'm going to start by talking about how engineers work. But I think a lot of this is applicable to architects and other designers. I always feel that we live in a sort of parallel universe. This universe contains the analyses we do to help us do our design. For example, when it comes to designing the structure of a building, we set up a mathematical model that we hope accurately represents the structure that we are proposing. We assemble a collection of mathematical structural elements, beams, columns, slabs, walls, etc. And we assign material properties such as strength and stiffness to those elements and then we define how they're connected together. Actually, most materials vary a bit with every, for example, with every batch of concrete will have a slightly different strength and, and, and um, stiffness characteristics. Every tree is different. And even the factory produced materials have some variability. So we include a material factor of safety that allows for those variations. We also tend to say that elements are either rigidly connected together or they're connected together with frictionless hinges. This is a gross simplification. If those hinges are allowed to rotate in all directions, we call them pins. So in fact, in reality, the, these connections are something in between those two extremes. So we also try to include other factors that give a consideration of how to take those variations into account. We then apply a set of loadings to that model. These include the self-weight of everything that's fixed, which perhaps we can calculate that quite easily. And then we add all sorts of combinations of live loading. So I find it extraordinary that when we're doing our analysis, we might say, okay, we'll put all the live load on one half of the building for these set of slabs or on the other, or we'll put maximum live load everywhere. And then we look and see what the stresses are in all of the elements. Actually, probably no particular building will ever see any of the load cases that the engineers have applied to that model in their analysis. So that's what I'm talking about, this parallel world. Um, but, um, and the other things like we will assume that the wind is going to blow in certain directions in combination with that patch live loading and the sun's going to move around. And we check all of those stresses and then we check the deflections and we try to make sure that the structure is stable, it doesn't fall over, that it doesn't buckle, it doesn't vibrate too much. Worse still, it shouldn't resonate like the wobbly bridge, um, that the cladding doesn't crack and fall off. So we worry about all of these things, all based on this parallel universe model that we've set up. And then, then, um, and then similarly, and perhaps even less accurately, we assemble environmental models that show how the air inside the building is heated or cooled and how it moves around at different times of the year. But these analyses are just mathematical constructs. They are parallel but not exact replicas of actual buildings. Probably the, and, and in fact, we never go back and actually measure what has happened in our building as a result of, all, of what's happening in, in real life situations. Probably the only exception is in earthquake regions where we put accelerometers in and we do see how a building responds and we do have its model and we do know what the vibrations were in the ground because we're measuring that. But that happens very rarely.
So by and large, we find that if we use reasoned arguments to generate these models, and we use these statistically calculated load factors, material factors, then if we follow this we, in our parallel world, we do find actually that in the real world, buildings behave reasonably well. But you can see it's a very gross simplification of what's actually happened. And because we don't monitor the building, the only time we learn anything that might enhance our ability to predict how structures respond is when things go wrong. So in extreme cases, something might actually fail. But more often, buildings just become annoying for the occupants. Maybe some cracks might start to appear, or bedrooms overheat because they're all facing south, or a floor feels a bit bouncy, or a flat never sees a ray of sunshine. And we're just not good at collecting feedback about these sorts of problems. Is it time that we started using some of the tools of big data, for example? This would mean that owners and clients would have to accept that their data would be collected and shared. And then the benefits could be enormous for everyone who inhabits the built environment, not just us designers. I think we need to make it the norm that post-occupancy analysis should always be carried out to find out what was easy or difficult to build, how much material and therefore carbon was wasted because the drawings weren't clear or the builder didn't have the right experience, what was built correctly but was too difficult to operate by the users, what was built correctly but the loading or expected use of the building had changed, how, ad how adaptable has the building been for different uses and different expectations, how easy is it to maintain and renovate it safely. Do people actually like being in that building or outdoor space we've created? Does it make them feel delighted? These analyses must include every aspect of design, technical and architectural. Do we properly check what our buildings and public spaces are like to inhabit? Do we go back? Do they work for everyone? How can we feed back from what we learn? I don't think we do nearly enough of this. When we judge projects for awards, we rarely see them after they've been used for a few years. As judges, we might meet the client's representative and members of the design team and the builders. We rarely meet the everyday users. We rarely visit those projects again. We almost never see any data on actual energy usage uh, versus predicted. I also want us to consider how the way we procure projects affects outcomes. Surely it's time we learned that our normal way of doing things that, that is so adversarial that it makes it more difficult to avoid mistakes. I think an encouraging example is how BAA procured T5, and it shows it's possible to have a setup where the client doesn't have to pass on all the risk down the supply chain, where everyone involved can have an incentive to design and build well, and to share their knowledge of any glitches and problems as they arise. And then another topic, Dame Judith Hackett's report on the regulatory, regulatory system in response to Grenfell, calls for a new joint competent authority which would oversee the risk ownership for multiple uh, occupancy housing. And it would give clear responsibilities for the client, designers, contractor and owner for both delivery and maintenance. And she points out that this would actually make us more efficient and it could be applied to all sorts of buildings. I think it's a really brilliant report. So I guess this is all a rather roundabout way of saying that we need much more collaboration between the disciplines and between the stakeholders and that we need to gather and share information. If we do this, then perhaps we can concentrate on what we really need to do, which is to make a built environment that not only works for us as human beings, but does so in a way that brings delight. I shall take you to Carl.
Thank you. Well, um, a saying has just come to mind, uh, fail to prepare, prepare to fail, and I'm feeling that quite deeply now. Um, an army client of mine used to repeat this at every single meeting, the six Ps, prior planning prevents piss performance. Uh, obviously, we were about three months late with his project and ran massively over budget, despite the fact that he said that to us in every single meeting. Probably the, the saying that we kind of built our practice around came from the RCA where I studied, and that was furniture designers, product designers, who do lots and lots of testing before they build anything or they make anything because they make thousands or tens of thousands of everything. And they talk about... Um, um, I can't remember what they talk about now. Uh, <laughs> fail early, fail cheap. So that's the way we started our practice with this idea of... Um, I guess starting off very small, very modestly, uh, trying to build up a portfolio, trying to build up a skill set. We worked as contractors as well as architects. And it was about learning our craft and about not overstepping what we were capable of delivering. Of course, we wanted to work on social projects and we wanted to do other stuff. And like many young practices, we got stuck on the hamster wheel of doom, as I like to call it. Not that I don't like doing kind of work for private clients, but you know, I became an architect to make a difference and to try and change things. And perhaps the people with the energy and the vision are the young people, the young architects, of which I'm no longer one. But they're the people that should be working on those kind of projects and the people that are unfortunately excluded from that area of work. So after grinding away for a few years, um, we stumbled on our kind of Pop Brixton project, which was actually not an architectural project or competition, but actually just a, a tender run by the council to to do something with a scrappy piece of land. So yeah, we took we took the risk of uh, borrowing some money and putting some money into the project and effectively becoming developers. And I, I think failure and risk go hand in hand. And in a way, the, uh, the architecture profession, I think, has been in some way kind of emasculated in the sense that you it's very difficult for architects to take risk anymore because risk has really been removed from our everyday workload that everything's kind of programmed out, everything's kind of set out, there's rules about everything, and you're generally not allowed to overstep the, the levels of your experience. So if you can't break that level of experience, how can you, how can you actually take a risk and move on to the next thing? So we, we managed to swerve around that project um, or around that kind of area. And I did the same thing building my own house. You know, I've, I've kind of ridden that kind of uh, homeowners kind of thing for 20 years buying lots of properties, renovating them, living in wrecks, selling them, and, and kind of having almost like a separate career of being a sort of small renovator that's, I've scraped a bit of money together, and that's allowed me to free myself from the kind of the usual constraints of small practice. Um, and I'm an optimist, like most architects, I'm like super optimistic, and that kind of keeps you going. But actually, I do feel that, um, you know, the, the architecture industry is failing. We're all failing every day. We're failing to do the kind of work that we want to do. Um, we're failing society. <laughs> Sounds pretty pessimistic, but I think I think we're just stuck in a bad place. You know, uh, I think there's been talk about we're working for the one percent of people, and actually the whole the whole mechanism. It's very difficult for architects to actually to be to make a difference and to do anything meaningful because the the system is broken in my view, uh, you know, the kind of the link of money to buildings is, is, is fundamentally sort of broken the system. 
So we're, we're, we're changing the name of our practice, we're dropping the word architect because we're actually increasingly seeing it as, as something that's a failing profession and the, the word architect feels almost like it's, it's, it's actually, to me it feels like a negative, it's a limitation. It, people immediately see it as a limit to what you can do rather than, uh, so they, they put you in a little box uh, saying, well you're an architect, you just do this obviously. So we're trying to do other things and we're trying to break the mold and I think for us the next step is moving away, like retracting from the idea of being architects. Yes, it's part of what we do, it's, it's a tool, it's something that we, that, and, and our training, and I think architects training is, is magnificent, it, it, it allows us to actually think outside the box and do lots of great things, but you know, I'm back teaching again now and I, I just feel for the young kids coming through university because of the, the frustration that they're gonna go through leaving uh, the excitement of, of the kind of academy and moving into the built environment is, uh, is, is kind of, they don't know what's going to hit them, basically. So um, I'll probably leave it there before I get too pessimistic, but I am an optimist, and hopefully we can find a good way forward. But, you know, I think the system's broken, and I'd like to discuss good ways forward. Thank you. Carl Turner there, looking at the, the term fail, fail better and just seeing fail. There we go. No, great stuff. Fantastic. Um, well, that was, you know, that was fantastic. It was really great. We ended on a high. <laughs> uh, now, one thing I think is kind of creeping into this discussion, and it became more explicit in Carl's talk, but it was first touched on by Valentina. Um, Valentina, you talked about uh, the disconnection um, between the... I think what you were talking about was the disconnection between the architect and the, the wider world. Now, what is... Is a grand, a, a grand vision, we, we, we talked a lot about post-occupancy evaluation. I think this will be a failure if it's all about post-occupancy evaluation, okay? That's, that's great, that's all true, but let's, you know, you know let's, let's go before the building's even done. We're, all, we're already racing through, racing through everything, got through, the, got through the building, already got to the failure after it. Let's go right back. And I think that's what you touched on, Valentina. What is needed to connect these uh, the architect with the wider public there you go um, I think it touched based on this earlier I think there are there are ways today of testing uh, and engaging with the public without having to spend fortunes um, a way, for instance, is social media. I mean, if you think how Instagram is effective and how often we... It's criticised also, by the way, you know, there are some buildings that become famous. I, I read an article about brutalism the other day and about how, you know, there is this celebration of brutalism because the Instagram picture, they, they look cool. Fair enough. It, they do look cool and not always they're a success, but... Somehow I think the social media and technology could be used in a way to let the people experience a space even before it's fully designed. And that could be a way of failing safe, but not really in the sense that you could try bolder ideas and you could try and put them out there and test them, for instance. Because we, 
you know, we, we've been mentioning this fact that designers can test things. I think I, I mentioned earlier, I read that Dyson to do his uh, uh, vacuum cleaner without the, the sack. Sack? It's called sack. He, he tested like 670 times. He had to fail 670 times before being able to do a vacuum cleaner without the sack. I mean, how many buildings, if you're lucky in, in your life, you can do, I don't know, how many buildings, even less than 10 or maybe 20. But, you know, how many times are we allowed to fail? And perhaps technology could um, help us. With a VR set, you can easily be in a space with, like, it's very cheap nowadays. You, with technology, a plug-in of Rhino, and you're in the space. You could test things. So that's a way. And, and the other point is, I think, engaging with people and with people who study people and cognitive behavior. So with multidisciplinary projects, that's the way to... We can't stay isolated because we often are asked to design. Design a theater today and, uh, and uh, you know, an auditorium or like, a, you know, a school, a hospital. How can you... You need to engage with the people who are actually going to be there. And, and, uh, and there are ways of doing it. Communications are definitely on our side in this one, I think. Very, very good point. Niall, you talked about uh, a lot of... Rela a few relationships. You talked about the relationship between the... Thank you. The profession and the schools, and that you saw a, a failure, perhaps the, a failure for, from, from both sides there. Um, you, 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 you identified... You went around looking for failures. No, that's, all, that's what we're doing. We're looking, we're looking for failures. I, I was just interested, what about the failure in the relationship between the architect and the public? What characteristics... Did you touch on that within your magazine? Uh, and if not, what what was your... In what ways, since you were going all out on failure, what was the, what was the failure there? Um, between architects and the public, we... Well, I include myself in architects, even though I'm not qualified. We don't really speak to them often enough. So we talk to other architects, and in our magazines and journals and awards, we celebrate things that the public don't necessarily do themselves. So people queue up to buy red row homes and kind of things like that, which we all kind of slate and say are awful for this, that, and the other, but they're really happy with them, so they must be doing something right. But in journals, we kind of celebrate aesthetics and sort of concepts and things that dig into theory, but not necessarily the things that the wider world celebrates and are interested in. And people are also really happy in homes that haven't been architect designed, so there must be some value to those too. So I guess it's kind of a question of value and talking about more than necessarily just economic and aesthetic ones. What do you think the public wants from, an, from architects? Our architecture, let's say. Or I guess you want somewhere, it'd be quite base, I guess, be kind of somewhere comfortable to, to live, somewhere you can kind of, which can kind of adapt as you grow. So if you're planning to have children down the line, someone's going to accommodate that. Somewhere you can hang up your washing. The amount of time I go to my friends' houses and new builds and they have their lines in their living rooms. It's kind of like, it's a beautiful open plan space with a great kitchen at the back and kind of big double doors and whatever else, but their washing is right in the middle. So really basics, which we put to the sides and value aesthetics over. So I think kind of quite base things, sense of community, 
often things like just windows, the amount of bathrooms a game are just kind of almost like closets with losing, and just less about kind of works of art and more about basic things that accommodate a variety of living. Do you think yeah, that, you go. Sorry, sorry, Tim. Um, do you think then that um, one of the failures in architecture is that we're not listening enough? We're not being common sense enough, thinking about just the everyday lives of people, and we'd be more interested in making a giant kebab in the middle of Hudson Yards in New York. Absolutely. Those are the things which end up in the magazines and that's huge and everyone knows it and it's all over the zine and everything else. And actually, those are conversations we have between architects and the public where they might be interested in going there and getting a photo or two. That isn't as big to them as it is to us. Okay. Okay. I, can I just say one thing? Okay. People who aren't architects and designers read design. Okay. I'm just saying, I'm just, it's, it may, might blow your mind. You know, it's a massive, massive, there's more, there's more people reading the zine than just you lot, okay? There is a big, big readership for it, okay? That's, that's my one little journalisty thing. Sorry, Jane. Now, Jane, it was strong on post strong on post-occupancy evaluation, your, what, what you had to say. What, what do you think about the, the idea, the, the, the kind of uh, the disconnect that we heard described both, both here and, and there? You, you talked very much about uh, a professional relationship and a strong uh, uh, and, and improving and informing that. Uh, that, that. That becomes quite kind of tick boxy and specific to specific requirements? How do, we, how do we create the terms by which this is, this is judged? So, so on the post-occupancy evaluation, I'm specifically not saying we just wait and go back and see what happened on a particular building. It's more that we should be gathering masses of data so that we're informing the design process. And, and I'm, I'm also with Valentina on this, um, the well-being. I mean, some people know me know that um, for Building Futures, I, I was passionate about this uh, project we have, Building Happiness. What are the factors which affect the human psyche? And it relates to what you're talking about. And so much of it is just common sense. So there's someone called Hilary Geach who is doing research in um, housing in Greenwich. And, you know, if, if strangers can walk past your bedroom window, you're likely to be stressed, and that stays with you all day. David Halpin did research in the 70s at student accommodation. If you open your bedroom door onto a long corridor and you've no idea who's going to be walking past your door and it might be 25 people on your corridor you use your your stress level rises and stays with you all day whereas if you if you break it down into smaller chunks and you're just like six people in in, in a little bit of corridor then it's it, so a lot of this stuff is just common sense and you know when i've been involved in teaching architects i mean i'm a great optimist because actually Architects are all human beings. They're perfectly able to look at drawings and imagine themselves as a human being in every spot of their plans. And it's great that we have better tools now to do that. But actually, you can do it even with just 
you know, a 2D drawing. I think it's quite easy. And the, the, the other thing that um, comes out of this well-being research is that people are happier if they do feel they have some kind of democratic contribution to make to where they are. I mean, that was the success of Bedzed, that people knew many more of their neighbours because they had to walk to the rubbish bin or whatever it was. Okay, I, I'd love uh, for one of these happiness assessments to be done on, uh, on Carl. Um, now, uh, the, 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 the arc of the, the profession that you've described um, and the fact that you, you, you know, you, by trying to expand the role of the architect by incorporating other aspects, um, isn't that a success? Yeah, I, th I think it is a success. And I, I think people are more and more interested in design and in all aspects of design and things like design and, you know, the internet, uh, social media. It's, it's all made design and visual gratification has become kind of a, a, a massive thing. People are really, really... So I think that's what that's that's one end of the spectrum. But the other end of the spectrum is that I, I genuinely think most people would rather not actually uh, work with architects or employ architects, or they don't really understand what architects do. We're sort of an annoyance, or somehow I, I think we become what, you know one of the agents of development of gentrification, where the the bit between the developer maybe maybe you know, real people. And the whole development process has, has alienated people, especially housing. It's very difficult for people to feel engaged in the delivery of housing, whether it's private or public. So I think, strangely, in kind of public buildings or maybe workspaces, people are maybe more engaged with architecture and design. And actually, people are really frustrated that they can't uh, be the author of their own spaces and places. And... But then again, there's another, another dilemma of the, the whole idea of co-design. You know, how do you co-design with everybody or with anybody? Um, so th th there's lots. I think there's lots of opportunities out there. How how can we work together with groups of people? And I, to me, it's it's got to be led by development. And I think there are lots of architects out there with money or from you know wealthy backgrounds. You could say most architects potentially have come from, you know, good, good backgrounds with money. And actually, I think architects do need to step up and start taking risks and, you know, actually becoming developers, actually making things happen. Um, and it, it is starting to happen, but, and I think that can happen at a really small scale. But I think we, we have actually have all the tools to make the change ourselves. And it's maybe the training that's trained as ingrained in us not to take risks and not to overstep the mark or the limit of what we should be doing and you know, accepting professional codes, that's all become a, a, a massive kind of um, break on, on, on our ability to take risks, I think, as a profession. And I think the general public are missing out on, on that kind of power and enthusiasm and motivation of, of architects to actually drive things forward and make a change. And, you know, I, th I think there's only so much you can do on a drawing board or in a computer or, you know, in, in a school. You actually have to get out there and do things and change it and make a difference on the ground. So... I think it's, it's by, uh, you know, 
I think all of us need to step up and, and lead and show that there is, a, there is an ethical way to develop and to actually change things. So that's my message is, I guess, uh, yeah, being more kind of self-motivated and doing it yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, any questions, any, any remarks, any responses? Anyone want to share a failure? I didn't mean that bit. I don't care about your failures. Yeah, over, over, over there. I have to admit, I am not an architect, but um, there's a building opposite Hackney City Farm that was a whole housing block uh, replacing the hospital that was there. And there was actually a group of uh, residents, one of which was an architect. And the architect said very strongly, put a non-residential uh, non bit opposite the entrance to the farm because that would the farm needs an extra building and an extra bit of space and that's the obvious place for it and it wasn't done and it's just a it's apartments on the ground floor which seems a real shame so my question is was that because the architect couldn't tell the developer to lose that that one extra bit of space is is the bravery you're talking about or risk it is that in, in you challenging the developers a bit more? Because it seems to us that the developer just does it by his spreadsheet and the architect may not have enough power and perhaps you need to take that power. Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. The, the idea that architects tell developers anything at all these days is, is kind of, it's, it's almost laughable really, but... I think all good architects, we will suggest things to developers and increasingly the conversation we're having in our studio is where do we go next, who do we work for, who are, the, who are the good developers and even the good developers, do we really want to work for them, are they really that good, are they really that ethical, but we have to, you know, we, we have to, we're running a business, we have, to, we have to work for somebody, so the whole thing about money and investment and wealth is so intertwined in the world of architecture, it's very difficult to separate money and investment from buildings. And um, so it's very difficult. But yeah, I think we can vote with our feet and not work for developers that we think are not doing the right thing. But it's, it's very, very hard to, you're quite often brought in quite early and you're not really sure what the, uh, the life plan's gonna be until you actually start working on a project. So, but yeah, definitely, we should have more of an influence, but the, the reality is we don't very often. Yeah, go on. Sorry, Carl. Sorry, Tim. I think it's a decent question as well, and I, and I think it is a massive failure with architects not to stand up to authority of a developer or the, the finance stuff. It's a battle. It's a, it's a real fight half the time. And most of the time, it turns out in failure, unfortunately, because it's all, in, in essence, about money. I agree, I think. I, I, I think that the, 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 the um, other side of Hackney City Farm, we're getting very local here, um, but it could have done with a different use. And, and, and that public realm has failed there. There was a market there that failed as well. Um, a, a really interesting book market that, 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 that failed just when the building was done. And, you know, so there's joined up thinking on a lot of levels that are failing. Architects, yes, but others too. I love you all, you lovely architecture people. Um, and I feel for you deeply, 
Really, 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 um, I do. But you get to make pretty things, don't you? You get to go out there, you get to put your statement on the map. That's why you're all in it, really, aren't you? You're kind of, oh, goodness me, the social programme, they're not letting me do you, they're not letting me give my vision. They're letting you, as artists, and some of you are artists, you know, you know, some of you, they're letting you go out there into the built environment, they're giving you the option... You've got more say than most to go out there and create and to give a creative solution to a very difficult problem. Now, if someone's going to make ask me to feel sorry for you, I do a little bit. Uh, but only a little bit. And I think that, that if you were to go out there and ask, uh, ask a, a wider group of people, they, they'd go... Isn't, that's, that's why, you know, if you're wondering why those people are coming through the door to still be, to still be architects, that's what they want to do. They want to just make their thing. Sir? Yeah, no, I was going to say, this is a plain concept in architecture. We have to come up with a concept. Doctors don't sort I was saying, do you think there's a blame culture in architecture? Um, we have the Carbuncle Cup. We will celebrate when someone does something silly or bad. Uh, doctors don't have a big party and have a big awards ceremony if they've done a botched job on a bit of surgery. So is there a, you know, talking about the post-occupancy you know, post evaluations, are people almost nervous to share that because they don't want to show that they've failed? Hello. Um, yes, it was more of a comment, I guess. Um, so, th thank you very much to all the speakers. I've actually not been to one of these evenings, and it's really interesting. Um, thank you. I definitely will next week. But um, I guess it's, as architects, you know, we love to talk about things. You know, we're having another conversation about architecture and academia and this skills gap that we have. But I wonder then whether... I actually think what's a practical thing. You know, for example, volunteering. You know, it's, it's almost like an open question to everybody in this room. Who actually volunteers outside of work? You know, who takes the time to mentor students that come into their practice? Or to, you know, do we really know what it's like? Is this public interface that we keep talking about, about how, you know, what's the public perception of architects and designers? But actually, do we really know what it's like to be a disabled child in the built environment? You know, do we really understand what it's like to have dementia? And actually, the only way that we can understand these things is volunteering. And volunteering in different spaces and embedding ourselves into these different spaces that, so that people can see that we are actually being perceptive to the issues. Because actually I think we're failing ourselves because we love talking about it. But I don't actually think we're being sacrificial with our time and doing something about it. Uh, you made a very interesting point about design, and it's a bit worrying, isn't it, that it's so popular outside architecture, because it's a bit like watching TOWIE and thinking it's a documentary. It's a completely unrealistic vision of how architecture works. These, these photos, it's just an endless stream of photos that have been, you know, heavily photoshopped, an idealised version, it's like a size zero model version of architecture. And, and people look at that and think that's what architecture is about, and we are terrible at talking about failure. Most buildings, most buildings, most contractors certainly, are fucking terrible. And we go to site and you, why have you done that? Why have you done that? Why have you done that? 
But you can't speak about it because you're working for a client. You're working in an environment where you start slagging people off for the terrible work they've done, and you just, you know, and it's not our responsibility. We, we're on site, you know, we're fighting, losing money, trying to, you know, trying to make the buildings as good as we can possibly make them. Yet, we're, you know, we, we can't even talk about failure when it occurs. Excellent. The double down option. Well done, Russell. Um, uh, can I ask you, Niall, to respond to that one? Valentina, you can respond to Russell. And um, blame culture. Okay. Yes, I do think there's a blame culture, but I think it's also easy to see why when it's awfully easy to get frustrated. As Carl was saying earlier, you kind of spend five years in architecture school learning about all these kind of projects with big grand social aims you learn the real value of good architecture and then you kind of come into the real world and then you're there to make someone's spreadsheet pretty and you just build the clients who don't value the same things as you do and you have all this energy all these ideas all these ambitions but that's not what you get to do on a day-to-day -day basis that isn't your job and it's what you've understood the role of an architect to be so I think it's really easy if you're there for a while that's kind of great down on you and you are going to look for reasons why you can't have the dream you had when you were in architecture school looking at all these big grand projects and architects as a not as a non-architect can i say actually going into an architecture school going in for a crit holy shit you know, I did English. If you had to kind of sit there and listen to the abuse of your, of your peers, of your of kind of like wander, people wandering in off the street. I can, I've come in, these poor students don't know who the fuck I am. Coming in there and going, yeah, I don't like that. And you have to take it. I don't know. I think the blame culture is... I, 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 I take your point. I think it gets worse. But I think you, you're all sadomasochists as far as I'm concerned. Um, Valentina, if you could respond to Russell. Um... I wanted to say something. There is something that I think that I wanted to say that I'm relates. To say it again, you <laughs> no, but there is two things. One, I think there is a gradual. You know, you were saying that you were saying that there is a lot of talking and a lot of talking among students. I think there is a sort of curve that the more we go on into the profession, the less we share. So at the beginning is all talking, and then there is all talking, no building, no designing, and then gradually you design more, you build more, and then there is like less, less, and less. And it's a mixture between not wanting to, you know, wanting to have a break, not having a life balance, life-work balance, so at some point you can't, you're fed up with architecture, you just want to get on with your life. And, and there is also the fact that, you know, it's painful, and, you know, we're, I think there is this element of struggling or failing to have a, a, a balanced a work-life balance, and that affects the fact that, you know, we don't want to share, keep on talking about that. We should sort of dedicate some work time, more work time, not only at looking back at the world building, but at sharing experiences. Because this is, uh, you know, we all struggle with contractors, but I'm sure that, you know, things repeat and, re you know, repeat and repeat, and there is so much that we could help each other. And the same is with, you know, with the... It, yeah, contractors, they have the knife on the side of the handle more often than not. But there is also, I, I was reading something about the fact that somehow sustainability and uh, it, there is always like this, it's looked like the, the architectural design intent and the wanting to make a better world is always on the opposite faction as, uh, as, want, as, the, as the economical world, as the finance. And somehow... 
there are ways in which we could, I'm not saying that it's easy, I'm not saying that it's a piece of cake, but there are ways in which you could try and, and combine and convince them that there is a benefit in making better building for, because their people are happier, more productive, hence, you know, and, and then they're gonna, you know, spend more, have healthier life, and so on and so forth. So there is some sort of cope in hope in collaboration, I believe. Oh, yes. So, I mean, in, well, first, firstly, I, you know, I think this is somehow being turned into something very negative. I think there are lots of really good projects, and we can all remember some fantastic projects we've worked on, and every single one of them, I bet you, you had a really good client, and you had really good contractors and really good consultants, and everybody trusted each other and respected each other and showed respect. And we, that's, I think, that we need to put pressure on our institutions, this is with my edge hat on, to say we've, we really have to put pressure on the whole procurement process. I know, I know this maybe sounds really dull, but it's so important. If we could get a, a working environment where it's the norm, where we're not put against each other, where we don't have clients, I mean, we have public clients, this is inexcusable, who are deliberately selecting uh, consultants who haven't worked together before and pitting them against each other and thinking that's clever and that we can drive down the costs and it doesn't drive down the costs, it pushes the costs up because things get done badly. But just to respond to the question about do we give our time, we all do it in different ways, I'm sure, this mentoring, but you also said something which struck a big chord, you said about people in wheelchairs, people with dementia. We are all, as I said before, human beings, we all have relatives who have things going wrong with them or friends going wrong with them. And so long as we just keep remembering that when we're doing our design, and I don't mind as an engineer saying to an architect, where's the wheelchair going to go the same route? Uh, you know, we can all pitch in and talk to each other because you might just forget it one day. So, and I, I just think, I, I, I think collectively we have great skills, empathy, and all the, all the, everything we need. We don't seem to have enough confidence to do it properly. And we should take on, we should, via the institutions, just take on the org larger organisations, so obviously we can't as individuals. Tim, can I be a bit boring here and say, um, I'm going to come in yet again. Mm -hmm. um, with the likes of Thomas Hetherwick's Hudson Yards, and I mentioned it earlier, and I don't necessarily want to spend a whole evening talking about it, but, um, you know, the, 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 Jane's last point, and the speaker over here, um, who rightly pointed out that there's a failure to sort of consider the everyday and, um, you know, minorities who might be disabled and so on. Where does likes of the star architects and the, from the Heatherwick's giant kebab in Hudson Yard start to fail rather than... Our, us all here tonight who are all struggling architects or engineers or people in the periphery, the big guys, they can get away with it because their fields are spectacular <laughs> and non-inclusive. That, would that be right in saying that? I have no idea how Heatherwick keeps doing it. Does anyone? You know? Anyway. Um, I think we have to admit that at some 
the Starkitects, I, I, I don't know. They're just. I, I think. I think we're going to have to stop calling them Starkitects. I think we're just going to have to start talking about very rich and successful architects. You know, that's that's that, that's the paradigm. That's what that's what architecture produces. We you know we can kind of talk about when Foster pops his clogs, when Rogers goes, that the death of the Starkitects. You know, that's not that's. That's that's not that's not happening. That's they're they're a, they're a result of a wider system, and that system, um, until you know, until there's a wider economic change, uh, political and economic change isn't 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 gonna isn't gonna change. But I do think the phenomena of the architect is. I'm, I'm supposed to be chairing this. Uh, I do think the phenomenon of the architect is is not just about economics and politics. They people. People, people like their stuff. I'm sorry. Anyway, yours, you, sir. Um, I think one of like, the, the best examples of like contemporary failure is like 15 Clarkmore Close, uh, which is done by Arvind Sahar. But one of the criticisms levied against him by the planners was that they didn't understand or know what the output of the stone that came out of that French quarry was going to be like. And Armin Tahar said, well, neither did I. The whole point is that it's unfinished. They only cut it in one dimension. And I think that says a lot about kind of uh, contemporary architecture, or contemporary architecture like now, um, is that we're too focused on controlling our output, particularly with like, parametric design. We're so focused on controlling the ins and outs and knowing exactly how it's going to be produced. But one of the best examples, one of the, I think it's a great building, um, was when you know, Armin Tahar didn't know what that output was going to be. So my question would be, is how can architects lose control a bit more? Carl? Yeah. <clears throat> lose control. I think, I, think he'd, I think he might have deliberately lost control of that building in a very good way. Um, yeah, it's, but that's, that's part of what we're talking about, about craftsmanship and about that room to experiment and to to let a building evolve and everything is now is so box ticking and I mean you know we all we all know the planning systems going through a huge problem area of you know 15 20 30 different reports that you have to have even for a modest sized building these days just to get through planning it's completely designed down to the nth degree there's there's kind of nowhere left to go so I guess I mean played it you know down to the wire on that building and has it backfired on him or has it upfired on him because it's kind of certainly you know he's become notorious there's no such thing as a bad bad press he'll probably get away with it and rightly so because it's an amazing building I've written a letter of support along with many other people but the fact is the planners shouldn't be pursuing him it's absolutely ridiculous um, when you look at even on the same street the kind of stuff that's been built uh, next to it but um, I think going back to some of the earlier points, um, yeah, you know, the whole, um, I guess, talking about failure, um, I, 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 I don't know where we really go next in terms of <laughs> the profession, really. Um, I've completely lost my train of thought. Ask me another well, question. I, th I, think the, I think the idea of... Um your response to the very good, very good question about how 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 do we lose control? How do you, um, you know, without you know drawing diagrams, how do you lose control? 
I mean, the, the only time we can lose control really is, is when we are working for ourselves, effectively becoming the developer, our own client. That's the time when we get space to experiment. We still have all of the other pre external pressures like planners and banks and other people, but actually it's the closest that we get to a kind of college situation where we're evolving the brief, writing the brief, talking to people, you know, actually talking to local people, or many of the community projects we've been doing, where we go out with a kind of a rough plan, and we talk to people and say, what would you do here? And then they come forward with some crazy idea and say, we've always wanted to do this, and then we can make a space in the building. And I, th I think that's, that's how the system should be. You should be able to have a loose idea about what happens on a site. And for instance, a lot of the work we're doing in Peckham, there's massive... Uh, community interest and community pressure groups on everything that goes on in Peckham and on some levels it's frustrating because there's just a lot of people there with a lot of opinions but actually you know when you when you work your way through those kind of conversations you actually end up with something that feels like it's authentic like it's got a kind of foothold in the community and I think you know when you're working in the public realm nobody's you're never going to get 100 percent consensus that something's good or bad but actually people can see that you've been there you've been having the conversations you you turn up you talk about things and you you've got an opinion you do things with the integrity of the the idea that you have okay somebody might not like it but actually they might you know respect the fact that you actually talked to them in the first place so but the, the problem is the system is generally set up to not allow that to happen in fact most developers really don't want to talk to the community. That's the honest truth. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Jane, how do you lose control? Can you lose control? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Well, no, no, no. There are a lot. There, well, I was told by Tony Fitz. Actually, Fitzpatrick. Actually, he said it to my director that he bets him on months' wages that the wheel doesn't stand up. So I have lived through that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, that's, I, that's why I really like working on, on competitions, obviously, because you can, you can kind of take a bit more of a risk because you, you you're, well you're just tossing ideas around and you can think the unthinkable a, a lot more and then you know now you do usually sort of say okay you know that beam is far too thin and we've got witnesses but I'll let you draw it for now so <laughs> I mean <laughs> there just has to be, I'm, I'm, I was very lucky to work with Peter Rice you know and he once said to me when we came out of a meeting on Stansted Roof and I was really nervous because he'd said that I, I knew this this tube did, was too small. He said, "Don't worry, because the roundabout's still going round." So, <laughs> you know. But but then there are there are ways to work things out. And as an engineer, we can only we can only take those risks if we know we have the trust and respect of the architects we're working with, who know that we'll try our best and that we're that we're actually just trying to work out what the aspiration is and contribute to it in the best way possible, and then try lots of different ways. And if one thing doesn't work, there's usually something else that will work in a different way and might even be better. You know, it's ping pong. I don't think that was what you really wanted me to talk no, about. No, I, was, I, I, I wanted a song. Uh, any any other any other points? Yeah. 
I think we've spoken a lot about uh, the model and uh, the way in which a building goes from you know conception all the way through to reality and use and and hearing about how you take that usage and then recycle that back. And I think there's been a lot of discussion about the model not allowing necessarily or not incentivizing that behavior of focusing on the end user and, and taking that all the way through the process. Whose role, I think, I'm interested to, to have a discussion around, whose role is it to change the model to ensure that it does uh, commercially incentivize um, the development of buildings to focus on the end user? Is it a regulator? Is it, um, is it the developer? Whose role is that? I think that as often in a project as architect, you are like the lead designers. You have to coordinate all sorts of consultants and you are the one that puts together all the pieces. So you need to know a little bit of everything, but you are the one that is talking to the client, that is connecting with the technicals, that you talk to the builders. So unfortunately, part of that weight, I think it falls on our shoulders. And, and, uh, and obviously, you know, the, the, the wider the message and, and the more people talk about it, journalists, readers, and, uh, you know, communities and so on. But generally, I think we have we have quite a big part of responsibility in this. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Great. Yeah, sure. I do, I do think that you can all be braver about this. I was, I was very inspired. It's different. It's an anecdote, really. But I was at a um, sustainability forum in Cairo, and it, it was about how, how we can decarbonize concrete. And there's an, an Indian guy there, and he knows that we could use they could use a lot more recycled materials in their concrete but they don't it do, doesn't mix the approved design mix in so he managed to spot in many many regions of india the bureaucrat who's the one who need, he needs to go and say now how could we you know do the right test so that we say right we can use that rubbish in our concrete and he and, the, and he would find a champion in amongst the bureaucrats in every department We've got to do that in every walk of life. We've got to find champions. Uh, and last question. Last question. All the way over there. Any, any last questions? Thank you. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to be a question because I feel like all the juices have been, have been flowing in my mind. So I'm just going to start and see where it ends up. Um, <laughs> First of all, I agree with uh, Carl that we are a field profession. I feel that we're stuck between a rock and a bad place. On the one hand, we have the developers who are keeping the umbrella of viability up all the time. And frankly, I don't think most architects know enough about it to resist it. So we nod and we go ahead. On the other hand, there is our own vanity, which I think is a big restriction. Um, we don't need POE to know that a south-facing room will overheat with our current regulations. But still we choose to not design external shading. And that's not because we can't, it's because we won't. Um, but on the other hand, I think like most people here, I'm also an optimist. I think you need to be as, a, as an architect. And even after spending some time on the new garden bridge that was erected by Extinction Rebellion last week, 
I still haven't completely given up on the things we're doing. And today I was in uh, Ravensbourne University and I talked a little bit about um, urban microclimates, which is my subject. I didn't talk about architect to the, architecture to the students at all. And they seemed really enthusiastic to do something that was not related to aesthetics. And I was also happy to hear Neil talk about um, maybe the overvaluing of aesthetics. And what I like about the young generation is that I have a current a new ambition that seems to be much more related to current issues and less being worn down by, um, by old dogmas. And my question would maybe be how can we give young architects and practitioners uh, a stronger voice and let's follow what we've been taught, which is frankly outdated uh, at the moment. I think you could give younger practitioners a larger voice by including them in the journals, in the events and sort of things like that, because at the moment it's exclusively trained journalists who write pieces on art architecture. So we'd be interested to hear perspectives outside of that. And that's something we've been trying to do in our magazine. But um, about value and aesthetics, I think it'd be interesting in architecture school if we were taught more on business models because you quickly learn how we design isn't appropriate to the way the world works in practice. And we are taught to challenge things, to be bold with our ideas, to be experimental, but we're not taught how to do that in a business sense. So we can do it with our designs, with our kind of space planning and aesthetics and learn all the theory, but when it comes to running a business or challenging current models where people are overworked and underpaid and don't have too much say, we don't know what to do, so kind of fall in line and do it the way it's been done previously. Very good, very good. Um, ladies and gentlemen, that was absolutely fantastic. Um, a great note to end on, and a really interesting. If you, if capitalism. If, uh, if, capit if, if capitalism is killing architecture, become better capitalists. Well done. Um, no, I'm, I, I, I'm, my, my facetiousness is just natural. It's not, it's not, always, it's not always what I mean. Uh, I think that was really uh, interesting. There's a, I know there's people pointing at me going, um, but I think it's at this point that we all take the, take the arguments and make them personal. Uh, no, uh, I don't mean that. I meant that in a different way. It came out wrong. I think we, we all uh, need to drink more, eat more, and continue the conversation at the bar. I'd like to f first, though, thank Stephen and the wonderful staff at Ombra for making us so welcome. I'd like to thank Niall Bridgman. Jane Wernick, <laughs> Valentina Michelli, and thank Carl Turner as well, and thank you all. 
Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. <laughs>